Welcome to another episode of Geography Now from the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. We are a charity, learning society and professional body and reach millions of people each year through our work in advancing geography and supporting geographers. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to geographers about the work that they're doing, topics they're passionate about and opinions they have about the world around us. At a time when it is impossible to host speakers at the Society, we are committed to creating content that can be accessed online and are excited to feature individuals who would have spoken at our events around the UK. In today's episode, we'll be speaking to Camilla Nicole, Chief Executive of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. This year, the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust is celebrating 200 years since the first recorded sighting of Antarctica and has committed to educating the public about the courage of the first Antarctic explorers, as well as the scientific and geopolitical legacy of the continent. This celebration is called Antarctica in Sight and is a celebration of science, art and culture. Thank you for joining us today, Camilla. Can I start by asking you to tell us about your background and how you came to the position of Chief Executive and um, what the Trust does? So UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, UKHT, uh, we're a charity based in the UK and we have two main goals really. One is to conserve historic sites in Antarctica, um, so a pretty tall order if you like, but also to tell the incredible stories of human endeavour in Antarctica, particularly British human endeavour. So we're here to champion the British legacy of human activity in Antarctica for the last well, probably 250 years really if you go right back to Captain Cook. But conservation is something that's always been part of my life. I mean, I, I started off as a geologist uh, and I've had a career in museums ever since then. So I've worked in all sorts of different sorts of museums, looking after pickled body parts in jars and Scottish football and uh, gem, gems and jewellery, all kinds. Um, and I kind of worked my way up uh, into management, obviously. Uh, and my last job, I was at Leeds Museums and Galleries, looking after nine historic sites and venues and museums and galleries Um, and then this job came up and it just brought together all my favourite things in one place so Antarctica which has always been an interest of mine ever since I was a child and it's something I studied a little bit at university as well Um, it involves conservation and looking after historic sites and preserving history but also sharing it with a wider public and that's you know as a scientist I've always enjoyed uh, communicating science but actually now getting into heritage and telling these incredible stories of Antarctica uh, it's just the best fun I've ever had so it's a it's a wonderful job Um, I've been doing it for nearly six years uh, now every day is different which is uh, also great I mean, the trust is, you know, uh, we'll be going from strength to strength. We, you know, conservation in Antarctica is a big and big job, tall order. Um, these are wooden huts that have been there for 70 or 80 years in the harshest conditions on Earth. So a tough, tough job. But it's important, I think, if you don't have the physical heritage, it's hard to tell the stories effectively uh, and bring them to life. So that's what, we're, what I'm here to do, what we're here to do as a trust. So it's, uh, you know, an important and I think uh, valuable part of the kind of cultural and heritage landscape and part of our uh, cultural heritage and our history as, as Brits. And then I suppose this year is 2020 and it's the 200th anniversary since Antarctica was first sighted. So 200 years ago, uh, within three days of one another, a British naval officer, uh, Edward Bransfield, spotted the Antarctic Peninsula and um, Thaddeus von Bellinghausen um, also spotted another part of Antarctica three days earlier. So there's an incredible moment in history, really, in in Antarctic history, certainly, when Antarctica was first sighted. It was always before that a kind of mythical place. They assumed there was something there. Cook very famously circumnavigated the whole of Antarctica in the 1770s, but uh, ice prevented him actually ever seeing land. So in 1820, when... um, 
Bellingshausen and Bransfield separately both spotted it. It opened the floodgates, really, to a new part of the world. And it's been a fascinating story ever since. So we at UKHC have just thought, actually, this is such an important moment. It, it touches so many of us um, and such it's so important to our planet today that we think that uh, it was an important moment to spend a year thinking about Antarctica and all that it means to all of us um, and to put together a programme so that people could uh, explore that in a bit more detail. So, as you've mentioned, this is a hugely important year for the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, but unfortunately a lot of the work that you had planned had to be postponed as a result of COVID-19. Can you talk to us about the types of events that you did have planned, uh, what you feel they would have conveyed, and what you've done despite of that? So all the things we can access on your website, for example. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a great programme that never was, unfortunately. So we had a wonderful launch uh, at the end of January, which is to mark the actual dates of discovery, down in the RGS, obviously. That was great. We had this wonderful launch uh, and we had a whole programme planned of events, activities um, and programmes which invited different voices to come and talk about Antarctica, to explore themes and issues in Antarctica that um, have meaning for us all, I think. So we invited artists and scientists, historians um, and others to take perspectives on Antarctica around certain themes which enable us to kind of reflect on those 200 years of human activity in Antarctica, good and bad, and to kind of think about what that has meant for the last 200 years. So whether it's been the exploitation of seals and whales in the early 19th century or the the geopolitics and the uh, sovereignty races of the mid-20th century, the heroic era of the early 20th century, up to the present day with these incredibly cutting-edge scientific programmes. So it was an, it's an opportunity to see Antarctica through different eyes. So we invited people with new perspectives to give talks, uh, to present artworks, to uh, join festivals. So we had a great festival programme. <laughs> we were joining a number of the festivals up and down the country this summer to just reach different people with, diff- with these diff- different voices. So it was a great opportunity, and still is a great opportunity, to sort of pick up Antarctica as a theme and as a as a, a lens, really, through which we can look at how humans behave in the world and how we take care of our planet or how we have exploited our planet over the years. Um, and it it is, you know, it's, it's a lot of heritage and a lot of history condensed into 200 years, and I think it's a, it's been an interesting opportunity putting the programme together. Now, yes, of course, COVID-19 pandemic has hit us and at a very cruel moment uh, in the sort of middle of March um, and everything, we had to start cancelling or postponing a lot of the programmes because a lot of them were physical programmes. You had to be there, if you like. So what we've done is some of those events we are pushing into next year or the year after uh, because they are so good and they do need to be experienced in, in, in person. But what we have managed to do is, is speak to a lot of the collaborators we had and, and try to find ways in which we could do things digitally with them and to maybe try some different ways of talking about Antarctica and and exploring some of these themes. So we are making some films right at this moment, just to explore some of the themes around the 200th anniversary. Um, And we're putting together a podcast series, so this is is good training. Inviting those different voices and people with the experience of being Antarctica or with a a particular perspective to come and talk about it. So it's not quite what we had planned, obviously, but um, it's certainly going to be hopefully a compelling programme and they'll be unfolding over the summer. But it means also that you know we had a year's activity planned for this this one year, but it was a launch really for the trust for a new way of engaging a broader public um, and more people with Antarctica generally. So the program Antarctica Insight will go on and was always intended to be longer than a year. And what we'll do is we'll pick new themes each year to explore different aspects of of Antarctic heritage and and our human activity there. 
That nicely leads me into my next question. You mentioned that each year you choose themes that represent different aspects of Antarctic heritage. Can you talk about what the themes are this year and the importance of them? I mean, for this year, because it is a broad look and a long view of Antarctica, we took some of some of the really big themes, actually, and some of these will doubtless appear in future years in sort of different guises. But certainly exploration and discovery was a big one. You know, this is all about the pioneers of exploration, of the first charting of Antarctica, the first sightings. And the human endeavour that has gone into that and, you know, the famous explorers, everybody knows Amundsen, Scott, Shackleton and all, all those. Um, but there are many others. And I think it, this is an opportunity for us to talk more about the other people that you may not have heard of who've pioneered exploration in Antarctica or made discoveries in Antarctica. The next theme is science and climate. So important today, but has its roots going right back uh, to the earliest um, voyages down to the Southern Ocean. So, of course, Captain Cook, you know, great scientific brain, great scientific crew, and, you know, science was at the very heart of, of all of his uh, voyages. And that's continued since. So whilst, of course, Bransfield was down there, specifically for commercial reasons, really looking for new sealing grounds, you know, you, you can't seal a whale effectively without good science and understanding uh, how populations and of these creatures move and live and feed. So science has always been a big part of human activity in Antarctica and never more so than it is today. There was a peak, of course, in 1957-58 for the International Geophysical Year when the world came together to undertake collaborative science programmes in Antarctica. But now we see the cutting-edge climate science going on in Antarctica, which is informing us all about what's happening with our planet, how climate change is, is impacting all of us in all latitudes, how our behaviour in other latitudes is impacting the polar regions. And it's we know it is a really sensitive barometer of climate change. So the science in Antarctica is really important, and so many interesting things are coming out of, of the science in Antarctica, not just climate science, of course, there's a physiological science and space science and all sorts. So we, as the Antarctic Heritage Trust, of course, can pull back the curtains on some of those stories and some of those scientific discoveries and go back and look at where the origins were. We look after Port Lockroy, which is the very first British scientific station in Antarctica. So the birthplace of the British Antarctic Survey as we know it today. So a really important place. So we can unwind the clock and go back and, um, and find those origins of the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer or, you know, glacial retreat, looking at photographs of glaciers and things. So science and climate are so pertinent for today, but have the, their roots going back decades and then the final theme for this year is geopolitics and protection. So the Antarctic Treaty famously signed in 1959, which is a unique piece of global legislation which protects Antarctica for peace and science. It is a consensus document which enables um, the 54 signatories or the 54 parties to agree on how Antarctica is governed and managed and what human activity can be carried out there. And this is a fascinating study of 60 years of this unique piece of geopolitical legislation and how that has unfolded and its origins. The origins were in a, you know, a sovereignty race between sort of 12 nations wanting to stake their claims for portions of Antarctica, a little bit like a trivial pursuit cake. It had its origins in these, this kind of race and it put a stop to all of that. It sort of said, OK, fair enough. You, those of you who have established claims, we acknowledge they're there but we set them aside but now there's a new way of governing and that is a really interesting uh, model it's been a really interesting 60 year experiment if you like a sort of political experiment see how that's worked it's a model that's been looked at for places like for space for the moon 
and even you know the Arctic in some regards is a is a mirror to that, and you can see how the governance in the Arctic and the and the Antarctic are different. So really interesting questions to be, to explore around that, and of course the heart of that is about protection. Antarctica was the last discovered continent on Earth, and it's one that um, you know we'd kind of meddled in every other continent on Earth by 1820, and Antarctica had yet been untouched. And yet we went in and, and spoiled it to start with by de destroying most of the seal and whale populations. But there was a relatively swift realisation by the mid-20th century that it needed to be protected. This place was not going to be exploited and suddenly mines and nuclear power stations and goodness knows what else were going to be put in there. That needed to be stopped. And this place preserved as a, as a global laboratory, as a natural reserve and as a part of, the, of our planet that can thrive, can thrive naturally and be studied carefully and be visited in a controlled way. So that's really important. And I thought, I think also the politics aside, I think the messaging about how we all have a role to play in the protection of Antarctica and the things we do daily, I think is a, is a message we can explore in detail and um, maybe, you know, inspire people to think about their plastics and think about the energy use and that sort of thing. And even, you know, today we're sitting here talking on Zoom, of course, and not getting in our cars and travelling to London and what have you. We can sort of reflect on our own behaviours and think, how, actually, uh, we can protect our planet and particularly Antarctica just by doing small things ourselves. So really important themes. They're big themes for this year. And we, we were thinking future years may be more focused, but you know, these big themes are always going to underpin any conversation about Antarctica, really. Again, you've given me a great segue into my next question. So you've mentioned the things we can learn and the changes we can apply to our own behaviours. But Antarctica has a really long history and like you've mentioned, it's involved everything from whaling to scientific research. What do you think are people's main takeaways from their time on the continent? What do you think people get from that? Yeah, well, I think fundamentally, uh, none of us are perfect. I think, uh, you know, he humans get into a, a new place on the planet and, um, first of all, they spoil it. And then, <laughs> and then they kind of reflect and think, well, actually, we probably shouldn't have done that. Maybe we could try and, and undo, undo the wrongs we have done. So I think Antarctica was only, you know, 200 years is the length of time we've been there. You know, the rest of the world, we've been there much, much longer and done the same thing. It's just it's been condensed into two centuries instead of 200. So it is an interesting kind of example of human behaviour on sort of fast forward, if you like. So I think it's important to reflect on the fact that it was only really discovered in the 1820s because there were people looking for new commercial sealing grounds. They were looking for new stocks of fur seals to get the fur. They were looking for new elephant seals to get the blubber and the oil. And later on, it was it was all about the whaling. So it was purely a commercial uh, exploitative venture. They weren't down there just to you know, push the boundaries of uh, geography. You know, unlike Cook, who you could argue, you know, was an explorer in, in the truest sense. So the first hundred years of Antarctica were a, a terrible tale, and you know one we you know should collectively look back on in in shame in in many regards. But it, what it did do is allowed us to map and chart the place. It, we you know, a lot of it was named in in those first hundred years, and you know uh, a lot of what we understand, particularly about the peninsula area and the subantarctic islands, you know have remained true you know since then. And then we, you know, head in the sort of turn of the 20th century into the heroic era of exploration, where some of the greatest stories ever told of human endeavour and exploration and adventure were created. So the race of the pole with Amundsen and Scott Shackleton and his uh, various exploits, of turning back from halfway to the pole and losing his ship and then saving his men and all of that. So incredible stories and these are stories that we we grow up with as children we all know who scott and jackleton are um, hopefully everybody should know who amundsen is but there are others and i think there are untold stories that uh, deserve 
telling and from that era and since. And I think particularly, I mean, we're sitting in a time where diversity uh, is, is being much talked about at the moment. And that is just as important in Antarctica. And there, there are diverse stories that are just not as well told as they might be. And so one of the things I would like to champion is that we unpick some of those stories and, and tell the true stories of all the people that have been to Antarctica over the last two centuries. Because there's some great ones. And it's, it's not all about Scott and Shackleton. But then you get into a, you know the present era of, of protection science. And I think, again, we now have kind of reflected, looked back and gone, mm, actually, there are wrongs that need righted. Whales are exploited to almost extinction down the Southern Ocean. And now we're seeing, you know, recent research this, this year has shown blue whale recovery, minke whale recovery uh, in the Southern Oceans, which is absolutely tremendous, remarkable, and is, is testament to 60 years of protection and conservation efforts to protect these species, to minimise fishing, uh, to behave in such a way that the feeding grounds are preserved and, and protected. So one of the biggest takeaways is that if you put your mind to it, it can happen. You can make a difference. So, you know, whales are almost gone and now they're coming back. And I think that is such an enormous model for how we can behave elsewhere on our planet. Another example is, of course, the hole in the ozone layer. Incredibly complex science discovered that uh, in, you know, in Cambridge and at Halley Station. Really important. Discovered this, you know, thinning of this layer of gas directly attributable to our use of aerosols and fridges and deodorants and all that kind of thing. And then you know, legislation stopped that. They said, OK, well, we'll not use these CFCs anymore. And then now we're seeing that, you know, the, the whole closing and the layer thickening. So, again, use the science, monitor the changes, discover the wrongs, establish a plan to right them and do it. <laughs> and it works. And you're seeing it working all the time. So I find that incredibly inspiring. But it does take a long view. If you can understand where the science is coming from, what the history has been, how did we get to this point? You can make a much better decision about where you go to from here. I think that's incredibly powerful and could be it's great learning for all of us. Absolutely. Our director likes to use the example of the ozone layer as something we have actually been able to tackle as a result of science informing policy change. So it is a success story. Exactly. You solve the problem one at a time. I think you're not going to solve everything all at once, but if you can pick the problems and solve them, find answers, then you can make great progress and reflect back and go, yes, that was, that was great. We did that. We can do it again. Yeah, it's important to have that mindset, especially right now. <laughs> Absolutely. So my next question speaks more to the heritage work that you do. Uh, people have been living in, travelling to and exploring the continent in different ways, whether it's for a brief trip or living there for a season, and they still continue to do so. Uh, there's normally a permanent contingent of people living there doing research. And you've mentioned Port Lockroy. Uh, can you talk about the history of the bases in Antarctica and the huts that you're helping to preserve? Sure, I'll do it very quickly. It's a, I could talk in for over an hour um, on just that. So Port Lockroy, also known as Base A. If you know your alphabet, that's the first one. So Base A was the very first science station installed and built in Antarctica by the UK. So it was a British government-sponsored expedition called uh, Operation Tabarin during the Second World War. So in 1943, the expedition left in order to establish these permanent wintering stations in Antarctica. I'd love to say it was all about science. It wasn't at that time. It was all about sovereignty. It was about having a permanent presence in Antarctica. And the kind of geopolitical background to that is the UK staked a claim in 1908 to a big wedge of Antarctica, including the Antarctic Peninsula. 
and sort of in the following decades other nations did the same sometimes at the behest of the UK and other times certainly not and we ended up with overlapping claims with Chile, Argentina and the UK all claiming the same portion of Antarctica and in order to exert your sovereignty and your um, geopolitical might you would install people there You'd have people there year-round flying your your national flag and making it very obvious that uh, this is clearly British territory slash Chilean territory slash Argentinian territory. So there was a bit of a space race, if you like, for getting people living and working uh, visibly uh, on the Antarctic Peninsula. So Operation Tabarin was established during the Second World War when there's a lot of geopolitical things going on elsewhere, obviously, to quell any encroachment of Argentina, particularly on the British sovereign claim of the Antarctic Peninsula. So they identified some key sort of strategic locations on the peninsula where they thought these are good places to stick a base, we can fly a flag. Any ship passing by will spot them. And one was at Hope Bay, which is right pretty much on the tip of the peninsula. And another one was at Deception Island, which is in the uh, South Shetland Islands, a very famous volcano location. Now, Hope Bay was a great location, but unfortunately the ice prevented them getting in, so they had to very quickly think of somewhere else to go. And a lot of the peninsula had been charted already, and they knew that um, Port Lockroy, Goody Island, was a nice sheltered harbour, easy to get into with a ship, easy to offload all their cargo, and a relatively decent-sized island to build a hut and and to overwinter. So they hot-footed it down there. They dumped half the cargo there uh, to build a base, to build a hut. And these were kind of flat pack huts that were built in Norwich by Bolton and Paul. And the other half got back on the ship and went off to Deception Island to establish the base at Whalers Bay, a place where there was previously a whaling station. So Port Lockroy was built in 1944, opened in February 1944. Nine men overwintered there for the first time and became the first scientific crew, the forefathers of the British Antarctic Survey as we know them today. So basically, um, operated until 1962, under a couple of different guises, it was Operation Tabarin until the end of the war, became the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey after that, until 62, when FIDS, as we know it, uh, became British Antarctic Survey. It was the, the pioneering station, it was the first station, it was the one where a lot of science went on, a lot of uh, studies of the upper atmosphere went on there, a lot of meteorology, geology, um, a little bit of sledging, but not a lot. But in the intervening years, many more stations were established up and down the Antarctic Peninsula by the UK. And these became the stations where science was carried out, where um, a lot of the sledging and mapping and uh, topographical studies were carried out. But at the same time, of course, Argentina and Chile were doing the same. So there were huts and flags appearing all over the place, huts and flags being taken down, put back up, all that kind of thing. Interesting and amusing, but actually quite a serious you know, geopolitical history and a history which reverberates today um, in the sense that there are still obviously tensions about the Southern Oceans um, around South Georgia, the Falklands and the, what we know as the British Antarctic Territory. So these stations were all built uh, and established and they would sort of, they'd have lifespans of between five, five, eight, ten years at the most before the sites would move on. So they'd maybe map a, uh, an area and then the, the base would close. They'd leave it there as a refuge um, and then build another one further down and do some more mapping from there. So there was this kind of little trail of, of stations of these wooden huts up and down the peninsula throughout the 50s and 60s uh, into the 70s. And then when we got into the 90s, the Madrid Protocol, which was the environmental protocol, which is where all the legislation for the environmental protection of Antarctica sits under the Antarctic Treaty, said that, well, anybody who's put in and doesn't use them anymore needs to do one of three things. You either decide they're historically important and designate them in historic sites, you give them somebody else to use, or you take them away. 
and clean up, clean up after yourselves. So those decisions were made. And at that time, there were about 15 former British huts um, up and down the peninsula. Uh, and seven of them were identified as of historically important. They say, obviously, Whalers Bay was one of them, and then five others. And all the rest were either handed over to other nations for use, kept in operation, like Rothera, for example, or they were uh, removed. So those seven stations were designated historic sites and monuments, and six of them are now under my uh, responsibility um, for their, their care. And their... So Bass, in the first place, did the first clean-ups and, and looked after the huts, but it soon became, you know, within 10 years, became aware that um, Bass as a scientific organisation is not a heritage organisation. They thought this is, doesn't align well with our strategy and our priorities, and there are probably other organisations that probably could do this better. And UKHT had been uh, around for about 10 years by then, um, and in 2006, Bass handed over the running of Port Lockroy to the UKHT. And um, we've not looked back. So, And over the intervening few years, they've handed over the five other sites. So we now have the six um, historic sites that we look after uh, up and down the peninsula. Port Lockroy we run as a museum and a, and a visitor attraction, if you like. We get a lot of visitors there from cruise vessels. The other five we preserve as they found. They're like little time capsules. So people do visit them, but in much fewer numbers. And we don't have a, a team stationed there through the summer. We, we may have a visiting conservation team but uh, at Lockroy we have a team based there for five months of the year uh, welcoming visitors and looking after the base and counting penguins. So yes it's a really fascinating history there are so many stories from them that we can tell and uh, you know our plans are to do that more and better and to uh, to share a lot more of what we do uh, in Antarctica um, a lot more in the coming years. So UK AHT does a lot of heritage work in Antarctica are there any particular projects that you'd like to mention or anything exciting that you've got planned? Well, I could talk all day, obviously, but the conservation of the huts is we're in the middle of a, a whole new programme and regime for the conservation of the huts. We've been spending the last few years visiting each hut in turn with a conservation team with um, all sorts of specialists in there, artefact conservators, carpenters, um, mechanics, 3D modellers, all sorts uh, have been visiting, uh, working with a team of architects as well. And what we'll be doing is surveying the sites, doing a survey, physical survey, measured surveys, terrestrial laser scanning, as well as conditions and material sampling to get a real understanding of the site, uh, what the pressures they're under, uh, what's going on with them, what's standing up well. And at the same time, in, in parallel to that, doing a lot of uh, historical research to understand the stories of the sites and what went on there and who was involved and all of that. And putting together a, a comprehensive conservation management plan for each one. We're in the kind of survey phase at the moment. They've been there for upwards of 60 years and it's time we kind of stop the clock for a moment just check out where they are, get a baseline data, and then we can devise a programme for their ongoing care. And that might be repairs and remedial work, or it might be ongoing monitoring as well. So there's a detailed programme of how we look after these huts. So that, that's quite exciting. I think that's it's, a, it's, it's technical. It's probably the most challenging building conservation programme you could do. I mean, I've looked after historic places here in the UK, and you know, rain is, tends to be the most difficult thing you have to deal with, and leaks, whereas in the Antarctic it's much more serious. So, so that's really exciting. But one aspect of the whole programme is working with uh, mapping and geospatial uh, informatics team at Bass to capture these sites uh, digitally. So we've been using photogrammetry and terrestrial laser scanning techniques to capture these sites in enormous detail. So we're getting point clouds, if you if you know what they are, of a billion dots that create these three-dimensional models of each site inside and out. And what this allows us to do is two things. One is it means we can, we've can we got a very accurate and precise model of the hut, which we can interact with uh, on a computer. 
It means we can take measurements with greater accuracy, actually, than you can with a tape measure on site, which is great. And it also means you can measure things you couldn't measure possibly on site, like thicknesses of windowless walls, for example. How do you measure the thickness of a wall without a door in it? But we can do that with a 3D model, which is great. So we can visit without visiting, but also many other people can visit without visiting. So we can create an interactive virtual experience of these huts using, you know, sort of cutting edge um, virtual technology, bringing together the people, the archives, the photographs, the footage and the stories, along with the 3D model of the physical hut itself, and tell us the story of the hut um, in a really engaging, interactive way. So we've got a project underway to explore how we might do that with Anglia Ruskin University to see how we can use the model for Port Lockroy as a really engaging, interactive experience so that you know, most people will never get to Antarctica, unfortunately. So let's, let's give them the next best thing. So let's, let's take you there virtually. Let's bring Antarctica to you. So that's a really exciting project we've got on the go at the moment. It's been really interdisciplinary. It's, it's bringing together high-end tech. It's bringing together sort of mapping and architecture, uh, thinking about conservation, but also thinking about storytelling and archival research and, and all of this sort of thing. So it's a really interesting and engaging project. And hopefully we'll uh, bear fruit in the next sort of 12 to 18 months and we'll have a, a, new, a model ready to go. So watch this space for that one. It should be really good. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I'll definitely be keeping my eye out for that. And I'm sure loads of our fellows and members would be very interested in accessing something like that. So thanks for letting us know about it. Watch this space. I mean, do visit our website or follow us on social media. So www.ukaht.org and just search for us on um, all the social media channels on those. But um, there's lots going on. Uh, Plenty to think about with the 200th anniversary, even if it's all digital these days. But, um, you know, Antarctica is there for us all. And I think uh, let's, let's all enjoy uh, and explore and discover it for ourselves. And uh, let, let us at UKHD help you do that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Camilla. Thank you so much for having me uh, on the podcast today. If you liked this podcast, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RGS underscore IBG for more updates about geographical talks and news. Thank you for listening. Uh, we hope to see you next time.